Pastor Stephen Cole once shared this story. A man was trying hypnosis to help him quit smoking. His friends asked him if he thought it would work. The man said, sure, it worked the last time I tried it. I guess not. Let's face it, Cole writes, starting well is relatively easy. Finishing well is a different matter. Starting that new diet or exercise program is kind of fun, but hanging onto it over the long haul is a real test. Getting married is exciting and relatively easy. Staying married through the struggles, adjustments, and trials is not always an easy matter. The same is true of the Christian life. Becoming a Christian is relatively easy. Acknowledge to God that you are a sinner and receive by faith the free gift of eternal life that Christ provided by His shed blood. You cannot work for salvation or, nor do anything to qualify for it. God gives it freely to all that recognize their need and trust in Christ alone. But then comes the hard part. Hanging in there as a Christian in a world that is hostile towards God and His people. The world constantly dangles in front of you all that it has to offer in opposition to the things of God. From within, the flesh entices you to forsake Christ and gratify your own sinful desires. The enemy hits you with temptation after temptation. The real test of your faith is, will you endure? Genuine faith in Christ perseveres to the finish line. According to Dallas Seminary professor Howard Hendricks, there are about a hundred or so leaders mentioned in the Bible. Sadly, two-thirds of them did not finish well. If so, then Paul's statement, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, takes on greater significance because so few finish well. Jacob is one of those who did finish well. And so while I debated having a 13th sermon in this series or not, because we could have appropriately ended our study in the life of Jacob with his return to Hebron and the burial of Isaac by the now reconciled brothers, Jacob and Esau. I realize it's important to note how Jacob's life ended because it is a supremely important truth. How you end is more important than how you began. I'm sure you know many who are in your families who are perhaps older, perhaps are even grandparents, and they have turned angry, bitter, unwilling to let go, unwilling to accept the realities of aging. They're still fighting. They're fighting with family members. They're fighting with friends. And you're just left wondering, why is it like that for someone who should be enjoying the golden years of their life? In fact, how many times as you witness older people who are still bitter and angry, you've told your spouse, remind me when I get older, not to be like that person. Or as children, you tell your siblings, when we get older, when we're adults, let's not be like our parents. Let's not be like our grandparents. Let's study how Jacob's life ended and take a look at four biblical principles or four perspectives that he focuses on that allows him to finish well. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 47. We begin with verse 27. And as you're turning to Genesis chapter 47, verse 27, let me read from you chapter 37, verse 1. Genesis chapter 37, verse 1 reads this. 
Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. The Bible tells us that after the burial of Isaac, which we covered last week, Jacob settles in the area of Hebron in the land of Canaan. Things are going well for Jacob. He's at peace. His family's growing. His possession is being increased. And so the book of Genesis now transitions from focusing on Jacob to focusing on his son, Joseph. This is covered in Genesis chapter 37 to 47 as it recounts the experience of Joseph. If you are interested in the fascinating life of Joseph, I encourage you to listen to a six-part sermon series I preached entitled No Filter about five years ago in 2015. And you can access and listen to the sermon series on our church's website under the sermon tab. If you are unfamiliar with Joseph's story because of Jacob's overt favoritism towards Joseph, his jealous brother sold him into slavery where Joseph ends up in Egypt. Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead. But God uses this injustice to raise Joseph up from a prisoner in Egypt into the position of prime minister over all Egypt. And in that position, because of revealed prophecy from the Lord regarding a long and severe famine, God uses Joseph's administrative abilities to collect enough food to save the Egyptians, the people surrounding that area, including Canaan, and to save his own family from this devastating famine. Jacob finds out that Joseph is alive and is overjoyed, and because of the ongoing famine, agrees to move his entire family temporarily away from Canaan to live in Egypt in the land of Goshen. And while living on the best of Egypt's land, Jacob is even able to meet the Egyptian pharaoh. This is where we pick up our study in Genesis chapter 47, verse 27. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly, verse 28. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. God's hand of blessing continued to be upon Jacob even though he had moved to live in the land of Goshen. His possessions continued to grow and Jacob couldn't ask really for anything more. The Bible notes that he lived there 17 years. This timestamp is important. Because in Genesis chapter 41, God revealed it to Joseph by correctly interpreting Pharaoh's dream that the famine would last seven years. And then in chapter 45, verse 6 of Genesis, Joseph tells his brother to move to Egypt because two years have passed and there are five more years of famine. So it should be after five years, they should have returned back to the promised land of Canaan, but they did not. We're not told why they do not move back. Perhaps life was too good. And any of you who have moved somewhere and settled there know that once you've settled down, it's really hard to get moving again. In fact, it becomes very hard for the Israelites to move to the extent that they stay in Egypt a few hundred years until their exodus. But that's another sermon for a different time. Look what happens, verse 29 to 31. 
When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Jacob, at the age of 147, knows that his time on earth is coming to an end. And so he calls his son Joseph and instructs him that he is not to be buried in Egypt, but in the land of Canaan, where God has promised a land for the descendants of Abraham. So adamant was Jacob in his request that he made his son Joseph swear. And when Joseph agrees, the Bible tells us in verse 31 that Jacob worshipped God. He bowed himself and thanked God that this was agreed to. Now you may ask, why is it so important for Jacob to be buried in the promised land? He doesn't even ask to see the place once more before he died. He just wanted to be buried there. Because being buried staked his claim on his inheritance from God that he was still a claimant to God's promise of giving the promised land of Canaan to the people of Israel. But I also think it was to ensure that his children and his descendants knew that Egypt was not their home. It was the land of Canaan, the promised land, that was their home. Of course, Jacob knew that if they were to bury him, all 12 of his children and their families would go back. And perhaps by going back would be reminded of God's covenanted promise with his family. You see, Jacob wanted to show what was in his heart through this request. And what was on the heart of Jacob was that the promise of God to him, the covenanted promise of God to him, was more important than anything else. More important than having a a good life in Egypt. He wanted to show his family what was on his heart. You see, many people want to be buried in a place that is significant for them. And so they request to be taken back to their ancestral home or They request to be buried in their hometown or with family at a particular burial lot. Or perhaps if they are to be cremated for their ashes to be scattered in the sea or scattered in their favorite amusement park or something like that, something of significance to them. Because the final resting place is where one's heart is. And so Jacob is telling Joseph, even even though I live in Egypt, my heart is with God and His promise to our family, which is not here in Egypt, but in the land of Canaan. I'm sure if Jacob wanted a memorial structure or a burial structure built in Egypt for him, he would have gotten it. And he would have gotten a grand one, especially with the position of his son. And he would have had a grand funeral as he and his people were so well-liked and respected in Egypt. But in this request... Jacob shows that he prefers to align himself with the promise of God rather than perhaps the praise and the accolade and the approval of the world in which he lived. And that's how he wanted to end his life. That's a change for Jacob. Jacob is now able to see beyond the temporal, to see with spiritual eyes 
which we talked about last week in his three arc lessons. Now in the later years of his life, he is focused on the importance of his walk with God, his relationship with God, and all that comes with it. And part of that is remembering God's promise to him, his covenant with him at Bethel. And so we see here Jacob exemplifying the first principle of finishing well, number one. Realizing the primary importance of a relationship with God. Realizing the primary importance of a walk or a relationship with God. You see, my friends, at the end of the day, it's not about having a great funeral. It's not even how the world will remember you. It's not about your legacy. It's not about what you've accumulated. It's not about what you've left behind to your kids. It's about your walk with God. You will finish your life well when you see that nothing takes priority over your personal walk, your personal relationship with the Lord. My friends, ask yourself the question, how do you want to be remembered? I hope it is in your case that when that question is asked of you, how do you want to be remembered, that your reply is, as one who walked with God. As one who walked intimately close with God. That's how I want to be remembered. I hope that's your desire as well. Sadly, all too often do people realize this too late in their life. And so their life is marked by trying to gain more possessions. Their life is about getting another title, more prestige, or even a higher position. Their life is all about the accumulation of something that they cannot even keep. Let me ask you this. Those who are in the hospital right now, fighting for their lives with the COVID virus, what do you think they're thinking about? Do you think they're thinking about work? Do you think that they're afraid that they can't go to work? Are they thinking about the projects that are uncompleted or the reports they have to file? Do you think they're worried about graduation? Do you think they're worried about what their friends think? I can almost guarantee you that they have one singular focus if they're fighting for their life in a hospital room. And that is on their mortality. They want to live. Or those who are more spiritually sensitive will begin to worry and think about their relationship with their God. If this is going to be the case, why don't you start finishing well by now recognizing the primary importance of a relationship with God and to begin to build up that relationship today so that you will have a close relationship that you can be proud of with the Lord. You can only have a relationship with someone if you put the time and the effort in. If God is really important to you as you say He is, and if you don't spend time with Him, then is that really a reality in your life? Because if you say your children and your spouse are important to you, but you never have time for them, something is always taking your time or has made you quite busy, then it shows in reality that they aren't as important to you as you say they are. So it is with God. If you say that God is supremely important in your life, but you don't have time for Him, then your actions belie your words. Recently, one of my children asked if I could go out and buy for him an external hard drive so that he could 
back up his files. He was afraid that all of his pictures and videos and files that he has worked so hard on would be lost just in case his computer died. I didn't have much time. It's been quite a busy week. And quite honestly, I was lazy to go out and get it. And so I procrastinated getting it for him. He would remind me gently. He wouldn't push the issue. But he would tell me that it was important that he get an external hard drive so that he could back up his files. But then something came to mind. I realized that if this is so important to him, it should be important to me as well if I believe that he is important. Did you get that? If it's important to him, and he's important to me, then what's important to him must be important to me as well. And if he were to accidentally lose everything, then I would feel so bad and I would blame myself because I was lazy to go get it for him. So I went and got that external hard drive for him. You can just see the relief on his face as he was able to back up everything. Finishing well is knowing that if God is the most important relationship you have in your life, then what is important to Him is important to you. And what's important to Him is what He's written in His Word, the Scriptures, the Bible. And so if God is important to you and you say that He is, and it is a relationship that you and I need to cultivate, then you and I need to read His Word so that we know what is important to Him is important to us. Look with me now at chapter 48, verses 1 and 2. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Joseph is told that Jacob doesn't have much longer to live. And so Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh the older and Ephraim the younger, to see their grandfather Verse 3 and 4. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Jacob tells Joseph about God's covenant with him at Bethel or Luz. This was the original unconditional Abrahamic covenant which was now passed through him and would be passed through his children. Take a look at verses 5 to 7. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you begat after them, shall be yours. They will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. But as for me, when I came from Padam, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. In verses 5 to 7, Jacob gives Joseph the double portion part of the blessing of the firstborn. He does this by saying that Joseph's two sons would count as his own so that when the tribal inheritance is divided up, Manasseh and Ephraim would each get a share as if Joseph got two. The other right of the firstborn was to lead the family. That went to Jacob's fourth son, Judah, because the first three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, all disqualified themselves from this honor because of their individual actions 
which we've already talked about. So Joseph gets the double portion blessing of the firstborn through his sons. And now Jacob wants to bless Manasseh and Ephraim. Look what happens, verses 8 to 12. Then Israel saw Joseph's son and said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my son, whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. So Joseph brought them from beside his knee and bowed down with his face to the earth. Jacob asked that Joseph bring the boys near. We're told in verse 10 that Jacob could not see well like his father Isaac because of their old age. And he wanted to bless the two boys. Look what happens, verse 13. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. You have to read these verses slowly to understand what's happening. Joseph took the younger Ephraim and placed them on Jacob's left-hand side. And he took the older Manasseh and placed him on Jacob's right side, where his right hand is, of course. And that's how Joseph thought it should be, since the blessings that came from the right hand would be naturally for the older son, being that it was the quote-unquote power hand, and the greater blessing would come from that side. And since Jacob couldn't see well, Joseph helped his father arrange his sons so that he would not be confused. The older son, Manasseh, getting the greater blessing. The second son, Ephraim, getting a blessing, but not the same as the firstborn. And this harkens us back to a similar situation with Isaac, who couldn't see well. And there was deception on the part of Jacob, where he pretended to be his older brother Esau. But in contrast to that, there is no deception here. This was an honest, transparent, circumstantial situation. But look what happens in verse 14. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hand knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. What Jacob does is he basically crosses his hand And he puts his right hand on the younger son Ephraim. And he puts his left hand on the older Manasseh's head, who was on his right side. What's happening here? Did Jacob make a mistake? No mistakes here. Jacob, although almost physically blind, he is spiritually very much aware and seeing. He is guided by God to do just this. If you read too fast, you will miss this one very important word. Look at verse 14. Knowingly. Guided his hand knowingly. Circle and highlight that word in your Bibles. He couldn't see which of his grandsons were whom. But under the inspiration of God, he intentionally crossed his hand. As God has revealed to him what to do, he doesn't even argue with God. He simply trusts God in what he was doing. Look at verses 15 and 16. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walk, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. 
Let my name be named upon them. In the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And Jacob, also known as Israel, imparted upon them the blessings of the double portion to have them take a share as if his own sons. But look what happens, verses 17 and 18. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Joseph notices that his father Jacob's hand is switched and said that his right hand should be upon the older son Manasseh. And look at the reply, verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. He also shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. Jacob says to Joseph, Don't worry, Joseph. Don't worry. Manasseh will also be a great people as well. But in God's sovereign will, the younger will be greater than the older. You know, Jacob was so confident in what he was doing, even though with failing eyes, that he tells Joseph two times, I know. I know, Joseph. I know what I'm doing. I'm trusting God on this one. And Joseph, you should trust God as well. I've trusted God in what He has done in my life. I've learned the lesson, and you should as well. Jacob is telling Joseph, God's ways are not man's ways. And it's a bit ironic if this is the message that Jacob finally comes to realize and to share with others. Because here was a man who did it his own way. Here was a man who deceived and manipulated to try to get ahead in this world and get what he wanted. But God had impressed upon him all throughout his life that he needed to trust his ways. And towards the end of his life, now Jacob is trusting God by faith, and he's asking his son Joseph to do the same. This must have been a hard lesson for Jacob, that even if it doesn't make sense, or it seems counterintuitive, the ways of God, it's okay, you got to trust Him. God's ways are not man's ways. Early in life, Jacob would have blown this away. He wouldn't have cared. But towards the end of his life, as he lived life well, he accepted it. This would be the fourth generation where God doesn't follow the cultural and social norms. You see, God picked Isaac over Ishmael. God picked, by His grace, Jacob over Esau, Joseph over Reuben, and now Ephraim over Manasseh. Verses 20 to 22. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Jacob tells Joseph, You've got to trust the Lord's plan. And you can trust Him because He has been faithful. He has been faithful in my life. And perhaps also telling Joseph that He's been faithful in his life. I see in this chapter something so clear. 
something that Jacob now lives out with the remaining years of his life, that he has learned to trust God in all areas of his life. And that's the second principle, number two. Learning to trust God in all areas of life. Learning to trust God in all areas of life if you want to finish well. In fact, when the writer of Hebrews is looking at Jacob's life, he's going to highlight one great act of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, which we call the Hall of Faith. Out of all of the exploits of Jacob, what will the writer of Hebrews note to be the greatest act of faith on his part? Look with me at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. The writer of Hebrews selected this blessing of Joseph's son with the crossing of hands in obedience to the Lord as the great act of faith for Jacob. When we trust God as uncertain as we are in what God is doing, as crazy as it seems, it is an act of faith. It is a sign of our spiritual maturity. This is a lesson that those who want to end well need to learn because it focuses them on not worrying about how things will end or what path or course God will take them on or the situation that we will go through in life. We just simply admit and recognize that God will take care of it it's not about holding on to something. It's not about the creation of a legacy. That's all the Lord's responsibility. How you will be remembered is God's responsibility. What's your responsibility? It's just to learn to trust God in all areas of life. It's hard to do, especially when we don't understand. But it's really for our good. In the movie Stand and Deliver, it's the true story of the math teacher named Jaime Escalante. Through his leadership, a group of inner-city students who no one believed could learn calculus at East Los Angeles Garfield High School rose to prominence as they excelled in the national prestigious advanced placement calculus exam. It's a wonderful movie that is a feel-good one. And for those of you who love math, you will enjoy it. But... Escalante teaches them through very unorthodox method. But I love the fact that it's a true story. And everyone loves how these stories end well. And indeed, the movie does end well as the students' hard work pays off and they pass this very difficult examination. But because they did so well, the authorities accused them of cheating and they disqualified their scores. Defenders of them claim that there was racism involved, that the authorities were unwilling to believe that Mexican-American kids whose parents were laborers and hotel maids couldn't have scored so well on an exam aimed at high-achieving Anglos. And Escalante hit rock bottom emotionally. He felt like giving up all that work. And they passed and they were accused of cheating. The students in Jaime Escalante's math department were not your typical math geniuses. 70% of the students were poor. 95% were black or Hispanic. Many of their parents were undocumented aliens who spoke little or no English and had never finished high school themselves. 
But these students had to learn that this was life. It wasn't a bed of roses. And so these students, to prove that they didn't cheat, were asked to retake the test. And they all passed the second time. In many ways, we say, why did they have to take a a test a second time? But it was actually for their good. Because from that day forward, no one ever doubted the results of their test. No one ever doubted that they, with their own intelligence, passed this test. And the doors opened for them in terms of opportunities as they went to very prestigious colleges. And for this inner city school, it has now been transformed into a math powerhouse program. Among the many bright careers launched from Escalante's program in this school are people like Daniel Castro, who earned a bachelor's and a master's degree in electrical engineering at the prestigious MIT and added a law degree from UC Berkeley. Today, he is an attorney specializing in patent law and and intellectual property. Jorge Samoya, the first Garfield graduate ever accepted by MIT, went on to have a successful career, even as two brothers following him went to Harvard. Olga Reyes got master's degrees in civil engineering and is now a nationwide authority on bridge design and construction. Leticia Rodriguez earned a master's degree in electrical engineering and became electronic design engineer at Xerox Corporation and Honeywell Corporation. Sometimes God brings into our life great adversities, and we don't understand why it is so, but we have to learn to trust God to bring us through the hardship and the pain. We will finish life well if we can learn to trust God in all aspects of our life. If not, we will become very bitter. We will become very angry at what life throws at us. Understand that, my friends. Look at chapter 49, verses 1 and 2. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel, your father. Jacob gathers all of his sons and he will bless them and give them some final instructions He will even speak some prophetic words as inspired by God. Now, we don't have time to explore in detail each of the blessings each son or tribe of Israel received. But you can read these blessings for yourself in verses 3 to 27. But what I want to point out to you is verse 18. In the middle of blessing his children, as he goes one by one down his children, Jacob suddenly stops and interjects verse 18. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Why does Jacob suddenly cry out this statement, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord? I believe as he is going through each of his children and blessing them, he is being reminded of his own life journey. And he is remembering that he does not deserve any of this. He doesn't deserve that his family is flourishing and will become great. And both as a reminder of his own life And as an instruction to his descendants, he is saying that it's all by grace. At the end of my life, with all that God has given me, I need a Savior. There is still something I need. And all that has been given to me is something that I cannot get by myself. It must come from God. And in this most important chapter for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish people, Here in verse 18 is a cry of inadequacy on the part of Jacob to remember and to remind 
that they all needed a Savior, someone to help them. As great as they would become, as successful as they would become, they still needed a Savior, someone to help them. I see in this statement the realization of Jacob where he recognizes daily grace and blessings in his life. And for us, it is lesson number three, principle number three for how to finish well. Recognizing grace and blessings in one's life. Recognizing grace and blessings in one's life. Jacob came to the realization that he was undeserving. Grace is undeserved favor. And he lived under the shadow of grace all throughout his life. He thought it was the work of his own two hands. But God had been reminding him, even in the experience with Laban and those sheep and goats, it's because of my grace. It's because I chose to bless you. You see, all of us need to come to an acknowledgement that all the things we have in this life are because of His grace. It's all too often that people do not finish well and they finish bitter and angry because they look at their life and they compare with someone else's life and they say it's not fair. They never see their own life as being full of blessing. They just always look through the lenses of someone else's life and what they don't have or what they didn't get. I want you to remember that each of these sons, each of the tribes of Israel would not receive equal shares of Jacob's blessings. Each of them would receive different things in terms of blessings from Jacob and, of course, ultimately from God. It's not equal. And so by Jacob giving these blessings that are unique and individual to each tribe, he is setting themselves up, we would say, for comparison and jealousy. Won't they be fighting one another? And we're going to see that in, in the tribal allocation centuries later, that they all don't get an equal amount. But here's a reminder from Jacob that instead of comparing, they should remember it's by God's grace that they even receive what they receive, that they aren't disqualified for the things and the shenanigans that they have done, such as selling their brother Joseph into slavery. But if they all acknowledged that all that they have are undeserved, just like Jacob comes to that realization and cries out for someone to save him, that all that he had required something even more that he could not get, which was salvation, then it is a good reminder for us as well. That when we say, I am blessed, you are saying, I am the recipient of grace. Blessings are undeserved. Don't ever come to the notion that somehow you deserve the blessings that you have. None of us do. It's all by God's grace. Look at verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. I want you to note a very important phrase here. Each son received blessings according to his own blessings. Would you circle that phrase? Would you underline that phrase? According to his own blessings. We're being told that you cannot compare blessings. Not everything will be fair in your eyes. 
all our blessings. Blessings and grace cannot be compared. How do you compare grace? How can you compare something that you have received that doesn't belong to you? How do you compare undeserved favor? You can't. And yet, sadly, we do. Let's say, hypothetically, that there are two of you and both of you do not have a car to get to work. Especially made harder because of the lack of public transportation today. And then surprisingly, the next day, one of you received a brand new 2020 Fortuner. And on that same day, the other person receives a 2010 used Innova. And if you were to interview both people, are you happy? Both of them should say, absolutely. We didn't have a car, and now someone has graciously gifted us a car. But I can assure you, most all of us want to be the one who receives the Fortuner, not the 10-year-old Innova. And if we were to know that the other person received a brand new car and a larger car and a better car, we would look at our Innova and we would begin to complain. But it should not be when both didn't have cars and now both have cars. I hope you see my point. We shouldn't be comparing grace and blessings, but here we go, always comparing grace and blessings. And that's what God was trying to tell these descendants of Jacob through the life of Jacob. He blessed them, each one, according to his own blessings. For them to look through the lenses that everything that they receive is from God by his grace, for his glory, in his blessings. If you don't see your life as a series of blessings, and if you don't see your life as God pouring out His grace, then you will grow very bitter in life. You will think that life is unfair. You will believe that you got the short end of the stick, that somehow God has shortchanged you. And the unfair things that have happened to you will begin to gnaw at you, and it will eat at you. But we all know that those who have an attitude where they feel that God's blessings superabound, the overflow of their blessings will allow them to bless others as well. And that's exactly what Jacob is able to do. He recognizes that he is so blessed, he blesses all of his many descendants. Look at verses 29 to 33. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought in the field of Ephraim the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Jacob now instructs all of his children, not just Joseph, that he was to be buried in the promised land of Canaan, specifically at a place he describes and not in Egypt. We find out that Leah is buried in the place of honor along with the other patriarchs and their wives. Then go quickly to the last chapter of Genesis, chapter 50. I want you to see the grand funeral that takes place, verses 7 to 14. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. 
as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house, only the little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptian. Therefore its name was called Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan, and they buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. This last picture is of a grand procession from Egypt all the way to Canaan to bury Jacob. So great was this funeral procession that even the Canaanites took notice of what was going on. But I want to point your attention to verse 12. The Bible tells us that all his children and their children and their descendants, except the very young, participated in this. What you have here is a picture of a united family to fulfill the wishes of a dying man. This is a picture of a family united. In spite of all of the drama, the intrigue, and the fights throughout the narrative of Jacob and even Joseph, the very last picture of Jacob's life as he is laid to rest is of a family united, overcoming the many dysfunctions and the messiness in his family. I think this also shows a life that has finished well. It must have been Jacob's desire for a family united to serve as a testimony to the world. And I believe he worked towards this for the remainder of his life until he passed. And that's our fourth principle, number four, for how to finish well. Desiring a family united as a testimony to the world. Desiring a family united as a testimony to the world. Now, this doesn't mean you have to have a perfect family. It doesn't mean that you won't have tension or misunderstanding. It doesn't mean that there will be no dysfunction in your family. It doesn't mean that there are no problems. It just means that you are aware that you desire to be united as a testimony to the world so that you will continually work towards forgiveness, reconciliation, and resolution because you know that there will be problems, but you want to finish well. And this will be a great testimony to the world that even in dysfunctional families, the transforming work of the Holy Spirit and that the saving blood of Jesus Christ can transform lives and families and friendships such that if there is dysfunction and messiness, there can be restoration and reconciliation. I've officiated enough funerals to know how sad it is when there are unresolved issues between family members and friends, where one child doesn't show up at the burial, still mad at something that had happened 30 years ago because of something left unresolved. I'm sure you know these situations as well. 
to finish well. It would be wonderful if the family of which you are a part is united. So you have to work on it. And as hard as it may be, you have the example of Jesus Christ who is able to forgive the unforgivable so that you can do the same to your family and friends. Being united or desire to be united requires for you to confront issues head on, to tackle the problems that you have, to not leave things unsaid. And I believe that's what Jacob did with the remaining years of his life, how he's able to manage a family that big and with so much history must not have been easy. In fact, he was the glue that held the family together because soon after his death, the brothers were worried that Joseph would mistreat them. And so Joseph had to assure them that he would not. He would continue to treat them well. And that's the rest of chapter 50. I hope whatever you're going through in your life, whatever family dysfunctions there may be, that you will work towards the desire to have a family united, especially since we're all in the family of God. We're all in the body of Christ that we place our trust in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. There should not be dysfunction. There should not be brokenness. And if there is, we must work towards restoring it so that we can be a testimony to an unbelieving world. As we come and close our study in the life of Jacob, I hope that every one of us will finish life well. I hope we will realize the importance of a relationship with God. I hope that we will learn to trust God in all areas of our life. I hope that we will daily recognize grace, God's grace and His blessing in our lives. And I pray that we will all desire family unified as a testimony to the world. It's not in the possessions you have. It's not in a statue that they may build for you. It is in these things that we have. A legacy that will carry on through time. I know that our families are not perfect. All I can encourage you is to finish well. And if you want to finish well, then you and I need to work through our family dysfunctions and messiness to seek and aim for forgiveness, reconciliation, and resolution. May God bless you in that endeavor. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. As we bring to close our study in the life of Jacob, we see how you can take a person like him, so full of himself and trusting in himself, to end well because he learned the hard lessons and he trusted in you. Father, whatever we're going through in our life and in the lives of our family, I pray that our families would glorify you in the way we act and treat each other. I pray that we, in our life, would honor and glorify you in how we live it. Help us to learn and apply these difficult lessons with the help of the Holy Spirit. Bless your people who have studied your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.